Who? Me? What? Yeah. I'm here. All right. Time for talking. Hey, I'm Scott. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Yeah, that got all messed up, didn't it? All right. Uh, yeah, it's the show. I'm going to talk about how much I hate the government. Well, mostly it's anti-war stuff. I do uh, interviews and talk about the news. Uh, I wish the show was over already. I got so much stuff I got to do today. Uh, but that's all right. Uh, we got some good stuff coming up. David Misner is going to be back on the show. It's been a lot, uh, been a little while since we talked with him, but he's got a new one. Uh, guest analysis at Levant Report. It's called On the Effort to Exonerate Team USA for the Rise of ISIS. Why, I also think that that is important subject matter. Ooh, and interesting. And Misner does a good job here, so. Uh, I don't want to get too far into that, except to say... Well, did you see the news? The New York Times. U.S. relies heavily on Saudi money to support Syrian rebels, of course, including Al-Qaeda terrorists. And then here in the Daily Beast, written by a guy from the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Huh? We're even running this on antiwar.com. I read it twice to make sure there was nothing terrible, like, you know, secretly baked in there somewhere. And I didn't really see it. It seemed like it was okay. Um, but yes, that's a very uh, pro-war, horrible neocon group. And it's by uh, David Gardenstein Ross and Nathaniel Barr. Uh, I don't know about Barr, but I know that uh, Gartenstein Ross is a Foundation for Defense of Democracies guy. And anyway, the article is uh, Shadow War, the CIA Syria Program and the Perils of Proxies. After fighting al-Qaeda and its affiliates for a decade and a half, the CIA is now helping them gain ground in Syria. I love that because, of course, that's a damn lie. What he meant to say was, after fighting al-Qaeda and its affiliates for a decade, the CIA has been helping them gain ground in Syria for the last half a decade. I mean, that wouldn't be very good language, but you understand what I mean. They are now helping al-Qaeda? America's been helping al-Qaeda in Syria really since 2006. And this time around, absolutely since 2011. There's just no question about that. It was in the GD Observer, dude. Oh, Prince Bandar is sending his Mujahideen off to Syria. Eric Margulies was on the show, said French spies and special forces are in country right now, bringing guns in. And at least by December, Phil Giraldi had reported that Obama had signed a new finding authorizing a CIA covert action program to arm up the rebels there. That was in December of 2011. And you know what? See, this is the problem. Well, and I guess when I write the book, I'm going to go back and find it all. But I used to have off the top of my head about four or five more footnotes just from 2011. That'll be a big part of the book or of that chapter of the book. You know, we'll be showing American intervention there from the very, very beginning of the thing. You know, all the time you hear, yeah, Obama started this program and trained these guys up back in 2013 
or sometimes back in 2012. Yeah, no, you spelled 2011 wrong. From the very beginning, America intervened in the uprising in Syria, hijacked it, and set it up to be hijacked by Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York City. And so here we are. It's funny, too, that, uh, you know, here in the Daily Beast, where they're going, yeah, this is all just happening right now. Uh, this is the same publication that, what, five months ago, six months ago, said David Petraeus wants us to go ahead, stop pussyfooting around, and go ahead and outright back al-Qaeda in Syria against the Islamic State and Assad. David Petraeus, the guy that lost Iraq, the guy that lost Afghanistan, the guy that helped launch this horrible war back in 2011 and 12, says, oh, it's not working out. You know what we need to do? Back Al-Qaeda against the Islamic State. Not that the Islamic State ever knocked our towers down and killed 3,000 people, but you see, David Petraeus doesn't care about that at all, apparently. So, hey, if he can lose two wars, he can commit high treason. Oh, wasn't there something silly, some silly scandal about him giving the highest level classified war plans to his girlfriend? That's barely, that's not a scandal to me other than it shows the double standard that he got away with it. He was given a plea deal, uh, the absolute minimum for absolute egregious breaches of handing, you know, folders full of secrets over to this woman. But anyway, um, I don't care about that. That's nothing. He lost Iraq and Afghanistan and he's, in the Daily Beast, promoting high treason with a capital H and a capital T. And I even saved the JPEG on my desktop so I can put it on Twitter every now and again. I'll put it there right now in case anybody, you know, says, well, Scott Horton's always accusing David Petraeus of treason, but I've never seen that Daily Beast article. Well, here, I'll show it to you, man. It has all the keywords you could possibly need. <clears throat> to Google it up and read it yourself. There it is at uh, twitter.com slash Scott Horton Show. Petraeus, use Al-Qaeda fighters to beat ISIS. That's the headline at the Daily Beast. And if I remember right, our friend Nancy Youssef was one of the authors of it, too. So how do you like that? All right. Uh, oh, by the way, this guy David uh, Krajicek is going to be on to talk about uh, criminal justice type stuff in the third hour, too. But anyway, did you see this? I was looking at David Misner's uh, Twitter feed this morning, and then I saw this. Noam Chomsky tells Al, Al Jazeera, I am not an absolute pacifist. Mm, okay, well, there are a lot of non-interventionists who are not pacifists. But uh, it's amazing. I, eh, I guess I'm not too surprised, but I am shocked in a way, kind of, sort of. I am not an absolute pacifist, Noam Chomsky said. I think there are times when the use of military force defensively is legitimate. And then he says, defending the Kurds against the ISIL attacks. Yes, that's legitimate, he added, explaining that, quote, the Kurdish areas of Syria constitute a fairly decent society, which certainly merits support. From the U.S. Air Force. And then he goes on to, you know, talk bad about Erdogan, etc. 
But then they ask him, yeah, but aren't the PKK terrorists too? Don't they attack civilians too? And Chomsky says, they have carried out attacks on civilians, yes. I'm not saying we should give military aid to the PKK. On the other hand, if we are interested in attacking ISIS and saving the Yazidi, then saving the Kurds, we can't say we are going to attack them. What? Jesus Christ, is this guy Dick Cheney or something? Did anybody hear that? First of all, defending oneself and traipsing to the far side of the planet to find someone else to defend are immediately and completely conflated together in the most simplistic Republican fashion. Are you kidding me? And then, because in so-called Rajava, Rajova or whatever, in Syrian Kurdistan... And, you know, they have rights for women and stuff. They're not really communists anymore, but they've got a pretty kind of progressive sort of syndicalisty kind of thing that he somewhat favors. So the U.S. Air Force that should not even exist ought to go and launch strikes from our NATO alliance in Turkey that we should not have. Huh? And then the guy says, yeah, but you want to support the PKK against ISIS? And he says, well, we can't fight them both. But the guy didn't say anything about attacking the PKK. He was asking about whether it's right to give them money and weapons and drop bombs on their enemies for them. Amazing. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, you guys, it's my show, the Scott Horton Show. And listen, I should say about Chomsky that this shouldn't be too surprising. Um, you know, Misner, he's some kind of leftist to the left of the progressives. I'm not exactly sure if he's an anarchist or a communist or what exactly, but, um, you know, and he's attacking his own or former publication in this article, uh, Jacobin Magazine, for something that they've written about Syria. Uh, anyway, he seems a very independent-minded guy, so I don't really care what his economics are. Uh, he's very anti-war. But anyway, um, uh, what the hell was I going to say here, man? Oh, it was about Noam Chomsky. Um, in the in the comments, the reactions to Misner's tweets uh, by other people who I'm not accusing them. I'm just saying it seemed to me they were communist, like self-identified, happy to be to the left of the left communist types. Uh, or, or, you know, they call themselves anarcho-syndicalists or something, but people who are very happy, happy to define themselves as to the left of Chomsky by far and consider him, you know, a liberal, moderate, wishy-washy type, which I think is kind of fair, man, on some issues, uh, at least. Uh, but the thing of it is, here's my point that I'm trying to get to. 
uh, one of the, actually two of the respondents to Misner there, they were explaining that Chomsky oftentimes does this, man, uh, over 40 years, which I'm not as nearly as versed in Chomsky's writings as them, but, um, it sort of shades the Black Lives Matter activists saying, well, go kill the Oregon militia then. Instead of saying, we want to be as free as the Oregon militia, they say, we want them in, as enslaved as us, something like that. So they, they notice the double standard, but then they take the wrong lesson from it, right? So Noam Chomsky here, as they put it, has been arguing, how come we bomb X but not Y? All along, mostly in order to explain the hypocrisy that the Americans don't mean that they're doing it because they love you and they're trying to protect you when they claim that. They have other motives. Because if they really did it because they love you and they're trying to protect you, then how come they don't do the same thing here, here, and here? It makes for a great explication about what American policy is about, but then you see how easy it is to draw the wrong lesson. Well, if you really love the people, then you got to bomb Libya too. You guys claimed... That, you know, you only invaded Iraq half because you care so much about the Iraqi people. You wanted to help them and save them from the evil dictatorship. Well, how come we don't bomb Libya then? Becomes a great argument for bombing Libya. Not an attack on Iraq anymore, but now a a support for the next war. And for God's sake, man, you shouldn't have to be Anthony Gregory to just say, you know what? I'm never for these wars at all. Sorry. You know, for God's sake, man, even Noam Chomsky. And you know what? It's the same thing with so many writers. I mean, I'm the viewpoints editor at antiwar.com. And to get a no from me is pretty easy, I guess, you know. But point being is that what a lot of what I see, I'm actually pretty easy going to and allow different points of view as best I can, you know. But so often... I see good writers like, say, um, the Van Buren's and the Kinsner's and is it Kinsner? Oh, Kinsner's and the, you know, whatever. A few of these other pretty damn good anti-interventionist writers. Um, Bruce Fine or, you know, quite a few of these guys who will have a great essay that does nothing but make killer points the whole way through. And then it has one sentence in there. Oh, you know who's really the worst about this is Ted Galen Car. No, 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 not Carpenter. It's the other guy, Preble. Sorry, Carpenter. I like Carpenter. It's Preble from Cato. Always make sure to have one horrible thing. One sentence that says, of course, we should spend a trillion. Or we should kill these people, not those people. Or something Some kind of poison pill, I guess, just to make sure that they don't get run on antiwar.com. Maybe that's it. But no, what it really is, is it's a desperate plea for credibility, right? I mean, I guess I could try to imagine that it's an honest opinion or whatever. But no, it seems much more like, oh, please take me seriously. I'm for some of the wars. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm against all the wars all the time. Well, why not? This is the evil American empire. Name me a war that had anything to do with defending the United States of America in the last hundred years. Get the hell out of my face with this crap. Well, you know, there are different arguments for this and that. Yeah, no, there's not. What are you talking about? Noam Chomsky has to say, listen, I'm not a total pacifist. I'm for defense. So I think it's okay to defend the Syrian Kurds. Well, Every assault is a defense of somebody, I guess. 
What's wrong, Chomsky, with defending the Shiites from Saddam Hussein? Because it was the Republicans doing it? He was good on Libya, wasn't he? Don't tell me he was bad on Libya in 11. Anyway, this is what happens when you're not either a hardcore... Well, see, I was going to try to give credit to the communists, but some of the communists are really bad, too. I think, and really, a lot of libertarians are pretty wishy-washy as hell. Self-identified libertarians. Well, I wouldn't even say self-identified. I'd say actual, you know, identified by other libertarians as libertarians are, you know, oftentimes weak on this stuff. Who's always good on it? I don't know. It seems like it would be really easy for everyone to just be over it now. And you know what? I'm sorry about the Syrian Kurds. I like Syrian Kurds. What's to hate about Syrian Kurds? If there's anything to hate about Syrian Kurds, I don't know what it is. They kill ISIS guys. I like that. But I'm sorry, man. If the Turks or whoever comes to wipe their ass out, the United States of America must stay out. It's none of our damn business. Everybody has, you know, their million little pet exceptions that they try to come up with to justify. But, you know, when I was reading this Chomsky, these Chomsky quotes this morning, I thought of Pat Buchanan, who, of course, he has his big uh, loophole. If you're a communist, he is against you. Well, at least in the Cold War days. Once the USSR was gone, he is over it. But anyway, point is, Pat Buchanan uh, once said, hey, look, what if China moves into outer Mongolia? And they use terrific violence to crush the uprising. I mean, what are we going to do about it except cry? No, really. What are we going to do about it? The answer is nothing. You know why? Because the Chinese got H-bombs. And I'm not willing to give up Austin. And you're not willing to give up Denver. And you're not willing to give up Los Angeles. In exchange for uh, cities we've never even heard the damn names of in Outer Mongolia. Sorry, you're screwed if the Han communist Chinese regime comes for your asses. The Yanks ain't coming. Okay, so why should that be any different for the Kurds of Syria? In fact, I mean, the obvious argument would be that as you're about to hear from David Miser, America created the entire problem for the Kurds there. And I guess you could spin that as an excuse for that's why we got to intervene to solve the last intervention, but I don't think so. I think that's just proof that at some point, like a long time ago, we got to just call this off and just stop. Noam Chomsky's got to be taught this. You hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, Al Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. 
And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, kiddos, welcome back. I got to fix this thing. Uh, it's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I'm him. And uh, our first guest today is David Misner. And uh, he's got this piece at Brad Hoff's site, LevantReport.com on the effort to exonerate Team USA for the rise of ISIS. Guest analysis here uh, by David Minzer. Welcome back to the show. David, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you back. Hey, um, so I wasn't sure how to introduce you because I was going to say you write for Jacobin, but after reading this article, I'm not sure if you still do anymore. Uh, uh, well, what? I did. I did. Uh, I have written quite a bit of pieces for Jacobin. I wasn't pleased with this piece, um, so I'm not sure I'll be writing for them in the future. But in any case, I've written for them and a few other places. I'm, I'm mostly, I'm some, I write fiction, but I also write freelance journalism, usually about U.S. foreign policy with a special focus on the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, your own blog is roguenationblog.com, roguenationblog.com, everybody can find. Is that your art on there, too? Uh, no, that is an art, uh, some artwork that I found. Um, by an artist, it's actually uh, it's been up there a while. It depicts um, the war in Iraq, so I thought it was appropriate. Yeah, that's good. Hey, listen. So, um, okay, very important story here, and this is uh, well, it's important your take on it too. You're not just challenging the narrative itself, but um, you're, and it's not you know personal. I don't mean to say it that way, but you're attacking anti-imperialist, anti-interventionist leftists for basically picking up this narrative that um, Assad, Bashar al-Assad, and the Ba'athist regime in Damascus is responsible for the rise of ISIS, and not just for being so jerky that they've provoked opposition, but that's, you know, supposedly Assad's plan, I guess, has been to create the Islamic State, as they say, to discredit the rest of the perfectly moderate suicide bomber jihadists who are fighting against Assad's regime right now. But so, um, I guess go ahead and, and, uh, and take us through this. Uh, is it really the, um, the prison break is, or the, or the letting guys out of prison back in 2011? Is that really the crux of the argument here? That's the crux of their argument. You're absolutely right. I mean, this argument you hear often from the State Department and from State Department friendly reporters, Vox, BuzzFeed, sort of establishment reporters that, uh, that Assad and Saddam before him are primarily responsible for creating and, and, empowering ISIS. Uh, you hear it all the time, but what prompted this piece was that I noticed that uh, leftist anti-imperialist outfits like Jacobin and Salvage, which is Richard Seymour's outfit, sort of picking up this line of argument, um, really exonerating and ignoring the role of the U.S. and its allies, in particular Saudi Arabia, Turkey, uh, for their role in the rise of ISIS. And yeah, as you say, the, the sort of one of the one of the principal components of their argument is that Assad empowered ISIS by releasing 
jihadists from prison in 2011. You hear this a lot. In fact, Salvage went so far to say is that the prisoners released by Assad represent one-third of ISIS, the other, other two-thirds being foreign fighters and uh, former Ba'athists. Um, so it's a pretty significant charge. So I went looking at that a little bit. I mean, the, first of all, the, the most you know striking reason why that's absurd is that ISIS wasn't around in 2011. Um, but I went looking and trying to find, and look at everything, but I read a lot of stuff trying to find proof that some of those uh, prisoners released by Assad ended up in ISIS. I found nothing. Um, now, there were some uh, reactionary jihadists that he released from prison in 2011. And by the way, this is important, too. It was received at the time um, as an act of of sort of generosity or trying to work and please the opposition, because it wasn't just jihadists release. It was another, it was part of a general amnesty, and the opposition received it as such. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what, and that's what the regime characterized it as at the time as well? Exactly. So in other um, words, it's any, pretty, you're saying it's, it's virtually inarguable that all this is just trying to twist it with hindsight, that at the time there was no question that he was trying to appease his opposition rather than sneakily letting out the worst jihadists to well, taint it. I mean, let me say this. I think there's an argument to be made, uh, a somewhat more serious argument to be made, that he did have in mind uh, further inflaming and, and making the, the opposition more rea- reactionary. Now, that's not what the argument they're making. They're saying that this created ISIS. But some of those fighters did end up in al-Qaeda and some of al-Qaeda's allies, um, which, by the way, are supported by American allies in the war against Assad. Is there any actual um, evidence that he did that in order? I mean, because don't get me wrong, I'm I agree with you that it's obviously possible that he was trying to discredit the opposition by letting out, you know, very dangerous jihadists to taint their side. Right. But is there any actual indication other than that this is sort of how it panned motive. out? I have I haven't seen any and. The people who make this charge, they link to articles, and you go and read these articles. I cite a piece by Kyle Orton, and the articles they cite, uh, they link to articles about the general amnesty that he that uh, Assad initiated, and the opposition was saying at the time, no, this is too this is too little, too late. It's not enough. It's not enough of a gesture of goodwill. So they didn't. They at the time, there's no evidence that even they saw this as whoa, whoa, you can't let these guys out of prison. We don't want them. So to your point, I don't see any evidence um, that that's the case, whether they're, whether he planned them to, to become part of the opposition or part of, more ridiculously, this group, ISIS, which didn't exist yet. Right. And then, of course, back to the point, that point, as you're saying, that's the argument they're making, not even that he was just trying to taint the, the opposition, the mythical moderates, and those loyal to Zawahiri and Arar al-Sham and God knows right. who, but specifically, this is where the Islamic State came from. Right, and of course, it's, it's you know, I don't want to talk about it in terms of their sides, but I will for the sake of the argument. It's their side, the people who make these claims that see a vast you know, gulf between ISIS and the rest of the of the of, of the opposition. So it's not really people like me who I don't I don't see a whole lot of difference between Al Qaeda and its allies and ISIS. But for the purpose of their argument, because ISIS has such political import and in playing the blame game, that's the argument they're making. So I'm contesting on their own terms. Sure. Well, yeah, and of course, and and for that reason, that's why that's what they're focusing on too. So, right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um. 
And it'd be one thing if they made this charge about Assad, which I don't, I, you know, I don't find holds up at all. And and some of the more you know well-informed, honest, uh, popular Syria analysts will, will debunk this pretty pretty readily. They'll they'll put the lie to it. But even if you're going to make that claim, it's it, it's especially bad when you ignore all the evidence. That of complicity from the United States and its allies, so it's completely uh, stacking the deck in terms of telling the the narrative about the rise of ISIS in Syria. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't know, man. Maybe it is just corrupt confirmation bias, or maybe it's you know smart. I guess I'll leave that to the observers. But it seems to me like even Josh Rogan has written in the Daily Beast that, yeah, all our allies are directly sending funds to the Islamic State, not just to the opposition, but they are backing the Islamic State. Uh, Just as even the Washington Post and the New York Times have admitted from time to time over the last four or five years that the CIA is sending tons of guns and money, just as they've admitted over the weekend again, tons of guns and money with the Saudis to whatever so-called mythical moderates that all end up in the hands of the jihadis anyway. Well, that's, I mean, that's one of the, I guess, amusing and sad things is that, you know, I'm no expert. I don't have, you know, access to, uh, you know, classified intel. I base part of my, you know, I'm a well-informed layperson who, who reads a lot uh, and talks to a lot of people. And I base part of what, you know, these, you know, to debunk what these people are saying, I rely on their own publications, which right. they're happy to ignore later on. Right. Yeah, um, including, yeah, your own work in Jackman, for example. All right, now, hold it right there. I'm sorry, we got to take this break. We'll be right back, everybody, with David Misner. Okay. His great piece at LevantReport.com after this. Hey, I'll Scott here. First, I want to take a second to thank all the show's listeners, sponsors, and supporters for helping make the show what it is. I literally couldn't do it without you. And now I want to tell you about the newest way to help support the show. Whenever you shop at Amazon.com, stop by ScottHorton.org first and just click the Amazon logo on the right side of the page. That way, the show will get a kickback from Amazon's end of the sale. It won't cost you an extra cent. And it's not just books. Amazon.com sells just about everything in the world except cars, I think. So whatever you need, they've got it. Just click the Amazon logo on the right side of the page at ScottHorton.org or go to scotthorton.org slash Amazon. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show here. I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with David Misner. He wrote this thing for Brad Hoff's site, LevantReport.com, on the effort to exonerate Team USA for the rise of ISIS. And in leftist publications, Richard Seymour, that's the guy that wrote the book, The Liberal Defense of Murder, about all the horrible humanitarian interventionists and all their apologists, I thought. Right, David? Yeah, he is. And he's a good, um, you know, well, I, I tend to agree with a lot of what he says, and he's written some very strong anti-imperial stuff. Um, and if I could return, because you asked about Jacobin. Sure. Um, I'm not sure your viewers will, will care about this, but I, I, was too, I wasn't prepared to talk about them. I was a little too flip. I, I do think, you know, I, I was grateful to be able to write for them for a while because they're a place that I allowed to, to write my stuff, which I think does have a strong anti-imperialist bent. And I think I 
still respect their publication, and I'm glad I was able to write for them. I do think they've moved uh, somewhat away from a strong anti-imperialist line, especially where Syria is concerned, for for whatever reason. So I've I've that sort of disenchanted me. Um, but we'll see what happens with the publication. I still think it's a good one. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, I didn't mean it. It came out as though I was trying to say, yeah, and you link to your own work in here to prove your point. I didn't mean it like that. I meant that <laughs> they were ignoring work that's been published on their own site, not right, that you had right. linked to it. Um, Got it. Which I had read before. That's all I meant by that. So sorry about that, too. All right. Now everybody's clear on everything. We're talking about the Syrian civil war, and it's a complicated mess, kind of. But basically, the argument here is that, well, there wouldn't be a rebellion in the South if it wasn't for Abraham Lincoln being their enemy, which, okay, kind of makes a little bit of sense as far as it goes. Now, when it comes to Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, I don't know about these leftist publications you're talking about here, but when it comes to the establishment, their line is, so, you know, we have to, you know, if assume we're doing the American Civil War analogy, if they're the Brits and they're going to intervene in the American Civil War, we've got to overthrow Abraham Lincoln and the government in the North. Uh, before we can get rid of the evil slave-holding uh, confederacy in the South, uh, because right. the North is really what's you know agitating them and making them so angry in the first place. And this is the insane position that our... In fact, Jeb Bush just put out a thing. I actually have it here somewhere. Defeating ISIS. How to defeat ISIS. we got to get rid of Assad. Huh? Uh, that's their argument. And, uh, but so I wonder about these guys. Are they promoting regime change? Is that what they're saying too here? Is that as long as Assad uh, keeps creating his enemies, then this is going to keep happening. So we got to do something to him. Uh, I think, I think it's varied. I think they would all like to see this. You know, I think they get sort of vague when it comes to the question of regime change. I think they, they, they basically want to see the Syrian government fall without giving too much thought to it with, with the, the vague unexamined hope that whatever progressive elements remain in the in the revolution, if I can call it that, will somehow prevail. Um, I, I see I see Al Qaeda, you know, storming Damascus and, and killing religious minorities. Um, but I don't think you know they, they will say that they're opposed to um, to U.S. intervention in Syria, but they seem to ignore or accept the U.S. intervention intervention that's. Uh, that's already occurred, and in their view, and I'm, you know, I'm generalizing, but I think there is a split on the left, and I'm generalizing about about their point of view and my point of view. I think in their point of view, the U.S. government has actually worked to preserve the Syrian government rather than to undermine it, um, and that's a whole other argument. I don't know how how well versed you are in in terms of uh, intra left arguments, but that's one that 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 goes on pretty pretty much nonstop. Yeah. Well, no, go ahead and elaborate about it if you'd like to. That's interesting. Um, well, the the the, the argument goes that the U.S. government has sought to undermine the the opposition by not giving it, um, forget for example, anti-aircraft weapons. You know, and they even said that they told, they've instructed uh, the rebels in the Saudi Arabia to pull back, and they had a chance to early on to overthrow Syria. And so it, ver- it sometimes verges onto conspiracy theories. About the United States actually being in bed with Assad, I do think there is something to be said. I think it's clear that the United States, at some point, pulled back from being hell bent on regime change. If they hadn't, then there would have been regime change. The United yeah. States would have gone in and bombed, bombed Syria and taken them out. That doesn't mean, however, 
that the United States hasn't sought to weaken and destabilize Syria from before 2011 to the to the current uh, current moment. And you could also make the case that the United States government has decided that the best case scenario is to sort of perpetuate this war, which without letting either side win. Um, but in any case, it's still a war on Syria. That's still imperialism. That's still causing suffering. Um, and regime change isn't has never been an end in itself. Uh, that's part of an effort to dominate and control other countries. And there are different ways to to tame and uh, and disobedient, uh, non-compliant state. Uh, regime change is one of them. You can also flood uh, the, the country with weapons, uh, as as the United States and its allies have done. Flood them with Saudis, as the U.S. and their allies have done. As you write in here, 12 of the judges, all 12 of the judges who preside over the Islamic State's court system in Raqqa are Saudis. You don't say. Right, exactly. And that's another thing that you find. And this is another, you know, I'm a student of Syrian civil war coverage. It's kind of a blockbuster finding you find that buried in this kind of short economist piece. Now, assuming it's true and well-reported, uh, you could easily see that as a cover story in the New York Times. But it's not. It's just buried here, uh, left for someone like me to pluck out. Now, that's kind of interesting information, uh, especially when you tie it to the well-known facts that Saudi Arabia has allowed uh, reactionaries, ISIS-bound fighters, to fly out of Saudi Arabia unfettered, and also reports that Saudi Arabia has allowed uh, death row prisoners to go fight in Syria in exchange for commutation of their sentence. Um, and that just goes to show what I'm saying is that uh, the argument that I'm taking on, those making it, will exaggerate and distort what Assad has done to empower ISIS while ignoring the, the material, very concrete material support that U.S. allies have given ISIS. Yeah, I even read a thing where a guy was... A Saudi was crying and saying, this is horrible. We have Saudis fighting for al-Nusra against Saudis fighting for the Islamic State. Brothers, come together. We're all on the same side here. Kind of a thing. And by the way, I want to point out, too, because I think you're very careful with your language and the way you write and the way you speak about this. And, and the way you sum it up in the article, I think, is really great that... You know, there there are various degrees of culpability and there are various ways of, uh, you know, overstating others' positions and accusations on this. But I just, it's a short well, enough yeah, clip, and, and we got the time. I want to play this clip real quick. It's really short. Okay. It's just Hillary Clinton basically explaining your same position here. This is from February of 2012. She's being asked by CBS, why aren't we doing enough to overthrow Assad? And she says... We know al-Qaeda, Zawahiri, is supporting the opposition in Syria. Are we supporting al-Qaeda in Syria? Hamas is now supporting the opposition. Are we supporting Hamas in Syria? All right, now there is no Hamas in Syria. There sure as hell is al-Qaeda in Syria. <laughs> and, that, and we know she got an email just a couple of days before that from an aide saying, look, AQ is on our side in this one, boss. Yeah, America's on al-Qaeda's side in this one. So she turns uses that as her excuse for not doing more in 2012. But she's basically, the, her frame is not, are we directly doing following Zawahiri's orders? She's saying, is our policy creating space for these guys to get what they want at our expense? We don't want that, right? That's what she's saying. And then that is exactly the policy that she continued to push and complain right. that Obama didn't come with her far enough. On, on the policy when, when she was still in power throughout 2012. 
That's interesting. I actually never heard that clip, and it might correspond with that DIA report that you've covered, uh, that in which military intelligence concluded that al-Qaeda and other reactionary elements dominate the opposition, and that was in 2012. Mm. Um, yeah, so th- this, was, this was known, and, and, that's, and that's, that's another thing that, uh, that becomes sensitive when you talk about the makeup of the opposition. And, and when I'm, I'm, t- I'm a member of the left, I talk about the left, and this stuff gets very, very sensitive when you're talking about exactly what was, what happened in 2011, 2012, who rose up, what were the groups, and so forth. Mm. Um, but I don't think, I don't think a serious argument can be made that, that reactionary jihadist type elements, uh, didn't dominate, uh, the, the opposition from fairly early on. And the thing is, too, as we've seen, and of course, it's a big empire, so you got a lot of different opinions in different places sometimes. Right. So I think Panetta yeah. and Petraeus may have come at this from kind of a little bit different angles. And then, of That's course, true. Seymour Hersh says that the military just decided we're not having this and started passing secrets to Assad uh, by way of the Germans to prevent the fall of Damascus because they just were insubordinate on the issue. They just couldn't take it. Yeah. Well, sometimes you find... No, you know, for all the talk about the, you know, the military, military industrial complex, I think sometimes generals take national security seriously occasionally. Yeah, they have a little bit different set of incentives uh, yeah. than than the civilians. Basically, they can afford sometimes, I think, to say, "Well, let's bomb these guys instead of those guys." Come on. <laughs> but then again, you know, you look at Yemen; they click their heels and obey anyway. They're right now they're yeah. bombing. Al Qaeda and fighting for Al Qaeda at the same time in that war. So, yeah, I just made a, a pro general comment. So, could you edit that out, please? Yeah, yeah, we certainly will. But no, no, no. It's an important point. It's a terrible irony. That's how. That's how I'll save you here. It's a terrible irony that we have to rely yeah. on our standing army to cool the passions of our hothead, egghead, right. civilian warmongers. Well, here, I think. Know? Yeah, I mean, they'll, you know, they're happy to bomb and to dominate. But I do think. I think you saw that in Libya that the civilian. Uh, leadership was was more eager and out in front mm-hmm. of the military leadership in in, in their zeal to uh, to bomb and and remove the Libyan government. Yep, of course they go along anyway. <laughs> we didn't see That's mass true. resignations, but uh, but That's yeah, true. it is it is certainly uh, instructive. Uh, regardless. All right. Well, listen, man, I really appreciate you coming back on the show and talking about this with us. And I, I do hope everyone will read this article and we'll certainly link to it on antiwar.com. Is it okay if we run this as an original on antiwar.com? Yeah, sure. No okay. Problem. All right, cool. Well, then that's what we'll do. All right, okay, well, thanks, thanks very much, Dave. Appreciate it. All right, it's a pleasure. Thank you. All right, so that's David Misner. He's uh, here at LevantReport.com, Brad Hoff's blog, LevantReport.com, on the effort to exonerate Team USA for the rise of ISIS. And we'll be right back. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop. Which is, by the way, what he's doing right now. Selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com
Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, guys, I'm here. Uh, dang on, it's my show. So, hey, uh, yeah, you know how time limits are, time problems and stuff. Uh, there's more to be said about this, so I'll say it. In case you're wondering, because you very well might be wondering, it ain't fair for somebody to assume everybody already knows the history of all this foreign policy stuff. Um... The deal is, the Islamic State, what they call the Islamic State, that is uh, what used to be Western Iraq and Eastern Syria, uh, now under the domination of the self-proclaimed Caliph Ibrahim, a.k.a. Omar Baku al-Baghdadi, is al-Qaeda in Iraq. Back when America invaded Iraq in 03, and then through 012 or so, 11... Yeah, they're up to 12. Uh, they sided with the Shia against the Sunnis in a massive, horrible sectarian civil war and kicked all the Sunni Arabs out of Baghdad and into the arms of the Sunni-based insurgency, the very worst part of which you might remember was called Al-Qaeda in Iraq, led by a guy named Zarqawi, who is not actually friends with Osama or working for him, and was wanted by Saddam. Was not friend, was not the connection that Colin Powell pretended in the UN address at all, was the opposite of that. But anyway, after the invasion, he came down from American protected autonomous Kurdistan and uh, brought his group, uh, which was called Ansar al Islam, down with him. And it, there's another name too, I, I can't remember uh, when that name changed thing. Anyway, but by the end of 04, he named it Al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia and joined Osama and declared his loyalty to Osama and his cause. And then so that was the worst part of the Sunni-based insurgency. And then uh, the tribes eventually turned on the Al-Qaeda guys after losing to uh, the Shia, losing the capital city. They basically decided to stop and regroup and narrowed down their list of enemies because they had too many. And they decided they would, well, the Americans decided they would accept the Sunni tribal leaders' offer finally to um, basically basically, uh, stop attacking our guys if we'll just let them patrol their own neighborhoods and have guns and give them some guns, some more guns and some money and basically leave them be, then they would leave our guys be. And then they had already turned on by then... Uh, by the time of that compromise with Petraeus, they had already turned on the Al-Qaeda guys. So they were sick and tired of a bunch of Egyptians and Saudis and whoever bossing them around and telling them what to do and this and that. And so they marginalized them, and that was what was called the Awakening, and Petraeus and the Surge got the credit, but it was actually just the Sunni tribes saying, we're not Saudis and we don't want to live like Saudis, and so screw you guys, and shot them to death, because guess what? There were more Iraqis than there were foreign al-Qaeda fighters who were, you know, their helpers. 
and and uh, how dare they try to be their bosses, right? So, but then Obama decides on regime change, and you know what? They fought an insurgency. I mean, we covered it all along at at uh, antiwar.com. Um, even when America was gone, there was still the Islamic State of Iraq is what they had renamed themselves. It was still just a group, not a place. And there was still, you know, was a Sunni insurgency, but not so much by the tribes, mostly just by the jihadists between the time America left. Uh, well, by the time America, the Americans really withdrew to their bases and really quit most of the fighting by, you know, say the end of 09. Um, and, uh, and then they left finally at the end of 2011. But then, uh, Obama decided on regime change in Syria. And this was a huge opportunity for the Al Qaeda and Iraq guys to now take their jihad and, and take it back across the border and, you know, into Syria. And they had, of course, there have been many Syrian members of Al Qaeda in Iraq and they were already getting started on their end anyway. And these guys came together. And just as Hillary Clinton puts it in that clip I keep playing for you there, um, America was creating the space. By backing the opposition, we were, in effect, backing al-Qaeda from the very beginning, and they knew it. I mean, there were times in, I think, early 2012, maybe even late 2011, Certainly by early 2012, where McClatchy, D.C., you know, Landay and them were reporting that, you know, in at least some official reports, the al-Nusra Front in Syria, that is the dominant faction of the revolution, so-called uh, the rebellion in Syria, it's nothing but al-Qaeda in Iraq. That's who it is. It's al-Qaeda in Iraq in Syria. And they call themselves al-Nusra, the Association of Helpers, or whatever it is. But that's who they are. And uh, so then what happened was the split in 2013, where al-Nusra and uh, the Islamic State broke apart. And that was because there was basically an Iraqi-dominated faction and a Syrian-dominated faction. And uh, the Iraqi-dominated faction decided that they would rename the al-Nusra Front the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. And, um, or just uh, whatever the region, however they called it. But they would go ahead and declare a state. And this was against al-Qaeda's strategy, which is keep fighting and di- keep disrupting and uh, destabilizing and radicalizing until some future time when it's time to do a caliphate and don't do it too soon. And uh, so Zawahiri told Baghdadi and the uh, the Iraqi-backed faction, go back to Iraq. And then they said no, and furthermore, what's Iraq? You are a tool, Zawahiri. If you recognize the line between Iraq and Syria, we don't. We're racing it, and we're creating our caliphate now. And that was in that was a year before they actually did it. That was in the spring of 2013. And you can read in my um, in my article that I wrote for the Future Freedom Foundation, "Stupidity or the Plan," in that I wrote in May of 2013. I said, "Look, you know, when when Baghdad doesn't control Western Iraq." And Damascus doesn't control eastern Syria, and you've got a, a Sunni-based insurgency that is not doesn't have as a fringe Al Qaeda, but is completely dominated by Al Qaeda, and they're calling themselves the Islamic State. Then you are in effect 
helping to create the caliphate that was always nothing but the most fevered dream of George W. Bush's propagandists and Osama bin Laden, you know, when he had a fever and the flu. Sick out of his mind, like someday that was ever even possible. And here, we're actually making it possible. And that was a year before they actually declared it. And another, it took six, seven months, they raised the black flag over Fallujah, and then another six months after that, they sacked Mosul and declared their caliphate and all this stuff. And so that's who they are. You know, al-Nusra in Syria, that's al-Qaeda in Syria. The Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, that's al-Qaeda in Iraq, the Iraqi guys, basically. But they dominate Raqqa, too. And then, of course, uh, as we were talking about with our previous guests there, most of the foreign fighters, the Saudis and the other jihadis, apparently have gone with the Islamic State at this point rather than al-Nusra. But So that's the difference between them. It's not that... And how many times have you heard this? Oh, well, ISIS are far worse butchers than al-Qaeda. Really? The guys that killed 3,000 Americans? How do you figure that? How do you figure... And 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 look, I I mentioned at the top of the show, it's on my Twitter feed right now. Petraeus, Al Qaeda fighters, we should back them. We should back Al Qaeda in Syria against the Islamic State. Simple propaganda. ISIS is even more brutal than Al Qaeda. Gets turned right around to Al Qaeda is downright moderate and tame and compliant and friendly compared to the Islamic State. Really, they are these guys who massacre twenty Druze for refusing to convert. You know, just, what, two months ago? These guys who crucify and behead their prisoners just like the Islamic State does use young men in suicide attacks against women and children just like the Islamic State does? Those are the moderates. Because everybody ran out of believing the myth. They had the mythical moderates for a while, but they just dried up and blew away. Man, there was nothing left to have faith in there. So now we got to rename Al-Qaeda the moderates. When the only difference between these guys is whether they should keep fighting for a while or whether they should declare their caliphate now. And whether they should do what Zawahiri says or not. Great. They're very, very moderate. I guess it won't be long before we're back in ISIS against Al-Qaeda. Why not? Superior blends of premium coffee. Roasted fresh in Zionsville, Indiana. Darren's coffee satisfies the casual and the connoisseur. Scott Horton Show listeners, visit darrenscoffee.com and use the coupon code SCOTT at checkout for free shipping. darrenscoffee.com Because everyone deserves to drink great coffee. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Uh, yeah, foreign policy mostly. Uh, coming up here in a few minutes, though, we're going to talk about, uh, well, criminal justice type stuff. I don't want to spoil it. 
Uh, but listen, uh, as long as I'm ranting and raving and uh, talking about the rise of the Islamic State and all that, let me tell you again, uh, Misner's piece is here at Brad Hoff's blog, LevantReport.com. LevantReport.com on the effort to exonerate Team USA for the rise of ISIS. And then to go along with that, from this weekend, U.S. relies heavily on Saudi money to support Syrian rebels. That's in the New York Times, and it's about how, yeah, al-Qaeda. And then as I was uh, talking about before, uh, this one, it, you know, it plays down the whole truth, but it's still instructive and long and interesting uh, to read uh, for all the great stuff in it. And it is, I admit, it is an admission. It's a disclaimer. It's written by the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. But I didn't see anything in it that was really a deal killer. I think it's all right. Uh, the CIA Syria program and the perils of proxies. See, so Israel lobby calling it quits on uh, back in the overthrow of Assad. I don't know. But anyway, you know, this is a big one in the New York Times, especially. But both of those are of interest for you if you want to talk about that. And then so, um, you know, back to the Chomsky uh, thing here about, yeah, no, we should uh, bomb in favor of the Kurds, the Syrian Kurds here. Um I wanted to mention that um, Joe Biden says the PKK and the Islamic State are equal threats to Turkey. This is at Vice News. Biden was in uh, Turkey and he described the PKK as a terrorist group, plain and simple, just as bad as the Islamic State, which I don't think that's true. I mean, they kill civilians, which is bad, but they're not. I don't I, I mean, they're not communists anymore. And they're, I don't think they're that violent against innocents. I mean, setting up bombings here and there, that's one thing. But just throwing people off the roof for being gay and whatever. It's a whole other kind of level of crazy, I think, when it comes to the the Islamic State guys. But anyway, um, you know, I don't think there's any question, although I admit that I don't know everything about it. But uh, the PKK does attack civilians. Um, although... Again, I don't think uh, anything like in ways that the way the Islamic State does it. Um, and then, uh, so here's just a little bit more of the conflict, right? Because uh, what Chomsky is supporting here is what America's already doing. We've got special forces in Syrian Kurdistan. They've renamed the YPG uh, militia, which is just the Syrian branch of the same PKK that Biden is calling terrorist. Uh, in his other breath there, um, and they've renamed it the Syrian Democratic Forces, but that's who it is. It's the Syrian Kurds, and I guess they say there's some of the Arab jihadists are part of it too, although I don't know the extent of that. I think it's primarily the YPG guys. Um, so we got special forces on the ground, and they just announced they're going to build an air base. The Americans are going to build an air base in Syrian Kurdistan. Jesus, Really? I don't know, man. I what was that? That was it. Was Jason wrote it up, man? It was from, I think, two days ago. I really need to learn more about that. But that's really an escalation as far as, uh, you know, the Russian role in all of this and what have you. And as far as the Turks, look at what a mess that Obama and his minions are putting us in at this point here now. As the Assyrian Christians in Syria have now clashed for the first time with the Kurds. This is from Al Jazeera. Uh, several fighters killed in clashes prompted by Assyrians' move to set up checkpoints 
in Kamishli, in fear of the Islamic State. So uh, there's another thing. And I guess, you know, I don't know if I should uh, check at uh, Moon of Alabama blog. I think they probably have the the best updates on this. But Erdogan, our ally, the president of Turkey, had threatened that if the Kurds could that we're backing in Syria could close the entire border with Turkey in a way that would, I mean, it sounds like, doesn't it sound like the end of that census, in a way that would cut off t- Turkey's ability to support al-Nusra in Syria, uh, then they would bomb them. They would expand their bombing campaign of the PKK inside Turkey and inside Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, which is not the government of Iraqi Kurdistan. They're just hiding in the mountains in Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, That they would expand those strikes to Syrian Kurdistan as well. Putting America in direct conflict with our NATO ally on that one. And then this one is from, this is kind of like the cherry on top of your Sunday here, uh, Syrian civil war. Assad regime accuses Israel of being Al-Qaeda's air force. I think we all owe Dennis Kucinich 50 cents every time we say that or something, right? He coined that in, uh, was it in the Libya war or in the Syria attempted and, and uh, thank goodness, aborted war of 2013? When, uh, wasn't he the one who coined that? Uh, you want us flying as Al-Qaeda's Air Force? And Assad picked up on that. Hey, look, Israel is Al-Qaeda's Air Force. And it's true, they keep attacking Hezbollah and Assad uh, regime, Ba'athist military targets there. And getting away with it. You don't see him attacking Al-Nusra. I remember when... When uh, Al-Nusra first started becoming a real big deal back in, I guess, you know, early 2012, uh, late 2013, somewhere around there. Uh, um, yeah, or no, 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 uh, uh, I'm sorry, I meant to say 11, late 2011 or early 2012, uh, when Israel attacked Syria. I remember, you know, just reasoning, not saying, oh, I know this or anything, but just Huh, I wonder if maybe like a bunch of Al-Qaeda guys were about to get their hands on the weapons depot and that was why they bombed it. Uh, because that would make sense, right? But yeah, no, it was to keep those weapons out of the hand of, out of the hands of the Syrian military and their allies Hezbollah, who were using them to fight against the Al-Qaeda guys. And I was thinking, well, geez, the Israelis must understand that. Gee, they're sort of playing with fire here with these Al-Qaeda guys up there, right? Yeah, here we are. Five years later, four years later at least, and uh, we still have the Israelis providing medical treatment to wounded al-Nusra fighters uh, who they meet at the line in the Golan Heights, and uh, at least occasionally, they're still doing airstrikes against regime targets. And I told you before, when... Um, I like this one because of the ironical, funny sort of a part of it. Ted Cruz says, I'm against getting rid of Assad because I think that would benefit Al-Qaeda and my position coincides with Israel. And immediately, um, uh, Israel lobby uh, right-wing neocons said, Ted Cruz is wrong. 
Israel supports getting rid of Assad. No irony, no embarrassment whatsoever. Just a debunking of Cruz, pure and simple. And he linked to Michael Oren writing a letter to the Wall Street Journal saying, I'm correcting you for the second time. We are not hesitant to see Assad go. We want him gone now. <laughs> hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. Eye on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. All right. So, very interesting article here at thecrimereport.com, America's Guilt Mill. It's by David Krychek, and he writes for Alternate, New York Daily News, Justice Story, The Crime Report, and more. And uh, you can follow him on Twitter. Uh, well... Just look at my Twitter feed today and you'll see his handle there. Uh, welcome back to the show. How are you, or not back to it. Welcome to the show, David. How are you? Thanks, Scott. I'm doing well. Very happy to have you here. Sorry, I'm used to saying that a lot. Um, thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, hey, listen, uh, great article here. Uh, very illuminating. Um, if only, not to take anything away from you, but if only because nobody ever writes about this or cares, which is actually kind of, I think, part of your point here, uh, that this is a very overlooked part of injustice in the American criminal justice system so if it's okay with you and i'm sorry because maybe this is annoying but for me the standard of what i, I in some ways still kind of conceive american justice as being or as uh, supposed to working and i think that most americans would probably like at least sympathize with me if not completely agree with me is from watching matlock and watching Perry Mason, and then I guess nowadays it's all law and order, this and that, which I got sick of that a long time ago, but people watch a lot of that. But the bottom line in every episode of Matlock is that as soon as the prosecutor realizes that, hey, I have some reasonable doubt here, he moves to dismiss the charges with prejudice, Your Honor. I'm so sorry. I, Boy, I lost to Perry Mason again, but or Matlock again, but better that than put an innocent man in prison. And you know what I think? I think everybody thinks that that's how it works. But I think from reading your article that maybe it's not. Yeah, I'm sorry to break that news to you, man. <laughs> It's not like on TV. Um, uh, yeah, there's never injustice on TV. The, I think a, a fundamental problem with our system, with our prosecutorial system today, is that the goal is not justice. The goal is convictions. And when you start at that, when you start at that point, um, uh, you know, mistakes are going to happen. Right. Well, I've said it before and I'll say it a million times just because I love it and I think it speaks right to what you're saying. Back when I was a cab driver years ago, I had an ADA from Harris County, that's Houston, Texas, in my cab and I was taking her to an ADA convention or something. And uh, so I was kind of picking a fight with her politely, right, and arguing about stuff and what have you. And she came out with the fact that, according to her, which is quite believable, at the Harris County District Attorney's Office, they have a slogan. If they really didn't do it, they'll get out on appeal. 
And what it yeah. meant was that anyone the cops bring them, they will nail them to the wall. They'll give them life without parole if they can. And they don't even think of whether they're guilty or not. They don't even care to know whether this guy really deserves what they're doing or not. All they need to know is that that's what the cops said. End of argument. Nail them to the wall. And then, hey, meh, screw them. It'll be, it'll work out fine if they really aren't the one. And I think that's a, that's a good point. And I think you're, you're seeing today the chickens coming home to roost, in a sense, in some of these um, police shooting cases, police-involved shootings that have made the headlines for the past year and a half or so. Um, this, you know, the, the idea of testifying by cops where they basically, they, they, uh, cop together a story and they stick to it. The, you know, the whole, every cop involved from, you know, the lowest level, um, right up through supervisors. And then they carry that story to the DA and then, you know, they they can't be shaken from it. Um, you, you, you started out with, uh, you know, saying this is a story that's not covered. You know, exonerations are covered. They're, you know, the National Registry of Exonerations at the University of Michigan does a great job of counting exonerations. And so far there have been about 1,700 that confirmed exonerations since 1989. But the point of my article, and it's one of the great mysteries in American law enforcement, is where are all the missing exonerations? Because those 1,700 exonerations, more than 7 out of 10 of them, are for either homicide or a sexual assault. Your listeners are smart enough to know that that's not the prevalent form of crime in America. The form of prevalent crime form in America, of course, are low-level crimes, thefts, burglaries, uh, robberies, aggravated assaults. I just threw a couple of numbers at you. And drug charges. Um, rough, roughly roughly 100,000 cases each year in the U.S. are either a homicide or a violent sexual assault. 100,000. A year. Compare that to the fact that every year there are about 350,000 robberies alone in this country. There are about 700,000 aggravated assaults in this country and about 2 million burglaries a year in this country. And yet, the combination of all exonerations for those so-called lesser crimes um, amount to a handful. It's something like 15% of the total exoneration. So, uh, you know, Criminologists have been puzzling for years about where are the missing exonerations? Why are these cases not coming to the fore? The smartest people in that business believe that roughly 5%, let's say 3 to 5% of all convictions of all types, from traffic court to homicide, to, to life without parole or even death penalty um, uh, homicide cases, 3 to 5% every single year are bad, are wrongful for one reason or another. And it's been, a, uh, you know, it's, it's a great mystery of where in the world are all these missing exonerations. That means that every year there are about a million people who are convicted of serious crimes in America. Every year, as many as 50,000 of them are wrongful. So but my, my, the point of my piece, um, which, by the way, was supported by a great Washington uh, organization called the Fund for Investigative Journalism. They gave me a little money so I could dedicate some time to looking into this great puzzle. Um, my point was to try to figure out why we don't know about more of them. And mm -hmm. uh, you saw the result, for right. better or for worse. Well, and it seems like, I guess, I mean, my hypothesis just off the start, and I guess you kind of addressed this right at the beginning, is 
you know, when it's when people are, you know, quite possibly innocent and they're facing the death penalty or life in prison, that becomes a lot higher priority for the few lawyers who are focused on this to, you know, make sure to focus on them. Because after all, limited resources, if somebody is wrongfully doing 10 years, that sucks. But that's not as important as getting someone out who's facing life for something that he yeah. didn't do or something like that. So. And that's that's really the the major cause of it right there is just a lack of lawyers who have the wherewithal to spend their time doing this, right? That's definitely part of it. I'll give you I'll give you two or three bullet points okay. uh, to to flesh that out a little bit. I'm right now dealing with um, a case uh, of an individual serving life without parole for homicide in uh, Bessemer Prison in Alabama. I'm calling. I'm talking to you from Montgomery, Alabama. He's up in Bessemer. This guy. This guy has written letters to a hundred uh, wrongful conviction advocates, and um, they ignore him. And that's this is a life without parole, or this is a a guy who potentially is going to spend sixty or seventy years locked up. He can't even get the attention of the Innocence Project, um, any chapter of the Innocence Project. And as a lawyer told me in my you know in my piece, the Innocence Project is not even going to take a look at any of these you know these lesser crimes. So. Why is that? Well, first of all, there's no DNA testing in most of these lesser cases. Right. Uh, still, it, it, it continues to be the case that two-thirds of the exonerations that we do find out about are re- result from DNA evidence. Um, secondly, a it's lot interesting, of cases, isn't it, that the most violent, uh, I guess it's not that much of a coincidence or whatever, but in murders and rapes, it's much more likely that DNA evidence is going to be left around, and plus those are the ones that get the headlines and and you yeah. know, drive the police money and all that. There often would be DNA evidence in, even in burglaries and deaths, somebody breaks into your car and, you know, they, they, they uh, uh, cut their hand on the broken window, but generally that the police departments are not going to test that DNA. They're uh, not going to test it. Just yeah. on the more high-profile ones. All right, I'm sorry. we got to pause and take this break here, uh, David. But we'll be right back, everybody, with David Krychek. He wrote this uh, very interesting piece at The Crime Report. Yeah, it's a year old, but still it's really good. America's Guilt Mill. And it's about all the innocent rotten in state and federal prisons right now. We'll be right back. Hey, all Scott here. If you like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at darrenscoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world, all specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. Darren'sCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. Darren'sCoffee.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. Talking with David Krychek. He writes for Alternet, New York Daily News, Justice Story, and The Crime Report. This one is at The Crime Report, America's Guilt Mill. And we're talking about some of the reasons why it's so easy for innocent people to go to prison. Uh, I believe you said, sir, you estimate, or someone else estimated that you thought was credible, uh, approximately 15,000 people a year convicted of crimes that they didn't commit. And, um, and, I'm sorry, 50,000? 50,000, yeah, 5% of a million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dang cell phones, you know? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
Okay, so listen, yeah, 50,000 innocent people. Yeah, and, and that's no surprise. I mean, it's shocking, but it shouldn't be surprising. But, you know, so here's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. I'm sorry to take you off your list. I'll let you back on your train of thought if you want. But I, I'm worried I'm, I'm worried about, and I wonder about, the judges. It seems like it's very easy to explain why the prosecutors get along with the cops real well and give them de facto immunity to do whatever they want, because after all, they're completely tied together and relying on and they might as well be one agency in real life. But the judge ought to be able to take pleasure in beating the prosecution down, right? I've even seen a judge posture that way and say the government this and the government that, a federal judge. Uh, talk like that, as though he's not part of it. He really sees himself as separate and independent, and he has the power to put their ass in check. And yet, when it comes to criminal prosecutions of regular Joes, it seems like every last judge is just a deputy of the prosecution, there to sustain their every whim and let them get away with bloody murder, and never s- call them out and say, come on, you don't believe in this case any more than I do. Get the hell out of my courtroom. That never happens. Why not? What are their incentives that make them so stuck in going along with this when they're the judge after all they can do whatever they want yeah well well business is is their incentive you know that's why that's why this this story is headlined america's guilt mill m-i-l-l if if you go sit in a courthouse almost anywhere in america but particularly a busy big city um there are there is rubber stamping going on with virtually every one of these cases the prosecutor and the defense attorney, uh, often an underpaid, overworked um, uh, public defender, uh, they meet in the hallway for 90 seconds. They make a deal. They say to the, the, the public defender, says to his client, you okay with this? We're going to take the, the lesser of two evils. You're going to get time served or you're going to get three months. And if you don't take this, you're going to get you know, the possibility of uh, seven years. They go stand in front of the judge, the prosecutor, and the defense attorney say, Judge, this is what we'd like to recommend. And the judge says, you got it. Rubber stamp. Next case. Um, you know, there just isn't time, um, and no one has the motivation to spend the time um, delving down into the details of these cases. Uh, Scott, you still around there? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sitting here asking a wonderful question with my mic off because I'm an idiot. <laughs> All right. So it sounds like what you're saying, though, is we need a complete overhaul here. Uh, is it we got to legalize drugs and driving infractions to just get the the clutter out of the way so that they can do the real business of criminal justice? Because after all, we're talking about, especially when violent felonies, we're talking about decades in prison or worse. We're talking about people's one chance at a human life that they got sitting in a cage, yeah. man. Yeah. And even in these lesser cases, you know, that's one of the issues here. Um you know, the Innocence Project says that it takes an average of five to seven years uh, for one of its uh, cases to wind its way through the process. Five to seven years from when they get a letter from somebody saying, hey, I was wronged, to when that individual is, is exonerated. Most of these cases that I'm writing about, uh, burglary, theft, uh, you know, break injury, your basic uh, robberies, these people are serving, you know, two years, three years, and... Um, uh, that's another reason the Innocence Project doesn't look at it because they're uh, they're they're done, they're gone before um, the wrongful conviction uh, would have wended its way along. So. Mm-hmm. Well, now, I mean, you talk about the level of uh, of traffic fines and this and that, but 
I guess, isn't that all handled by municipal courts and county judges and whatever on a different level than the felony counts? Shouldn't those judges be able to take more time? Why Why are the, the traffic fines even relevant when it comes to clogging up the other parts of the courts? If I'm, I'll be honest. I've, I've spent time in courthouses in a lot of different jurisdictions from the Midwest to the Northeast to the South. And they all kind of function the same way, whether it's traffic court or whether it's, you know, a felony district court. Um, there's a time imperative with every case that comes in front of that judge, and the judge is always impatient. You know, let's get to the point. Let's get this over with. That's, you know, that's a prevailing attitude. And it's kind of a prevailing attitude, unfortunately, for, for public defenders, too, who, you know, as, as it's well documented, are underpaid and overworked. So, yeah, going back to what you said uh, a few minutes ago, um, uh, you know, some sort of a top-to-bottom rethinking where the goal is not just to get a case done. Um, the goal is to somehow find justice mm-hmm. in getting that case done. Well, now, what if we just completely legalize drugs? And I mean, let Walgreens sell heroin, the trade in it, the possession of it, and all of that. Just forget the entire prohibition. Uh, what percentage of the chaff would that weed out? Yeah, that would, that would speed things up a lot. It would... It would probably um, take a lot of uh, the know, violence with it, too, of course. Yeah, yeah. You know, in, but just in terms of the arrests and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you see a lot of cities like New York going away with going away from uh, arrests for, for minor marijuana possession in favor of, you know, written tickets violations. Um, it would probably, if that were the case, if that were the standard across the country, it probably would cut 15% of uh, cases out of misdemeanor court and, you know, comparable number probably in felony court. Yeah. Um, you know, back when I still thought that the state should exist at all, I thought, well, maybe if its only job was national defense and criminal justice, then the democracy could focus like a laser just on these issues and make sure we get this right. Make sure that people really do get a chance to confront their accusers or else it ain't fair. And pff, <laughs> I don't even believe that anymore, but... You know, I don't know who could do anything about it. When when we see major efforts by leading politicians along these lines, we're talking about minor little corrections, if anything, right? Like you said, maybe yeah. legalized pot possession somewhat or something. I mean, at that rate, it's going to take us till a couple of centuries from now to fix this thing. Yeah, and and moreover, you know, what's going on right now in, in American court systems is budget cuts. So everybody's forced to do less with do more with less, and um, uh, that exacerbates the problem also. Uh, you know, the, everybody's under pressure, from the clerks to the judges to the, you know, you name it, top to bottom. Yeah. Um, okay, could you talk a little bit about false confessions, as you do in the article here? Why would a man admit to something that he didn't do, that he knows these guys are going to put him in the clink for? Yeah, well, first of all, it's it's often a case of uh, choosing the lesser of two evils, so. There. Well, but I'm not talking about just a guilty plea. I'm talking about signing a thing that says, yeah, I committed this actual crime. Yeah, yeah that's that's a really interesting um, psychological phenomenon. And, you know, often it's a case of, uh, you're, you know, the, the term Midwest nice, you know, people in Nebraska and Minnesota and the Dakotas, they're, you know, they're just nice people. They just want to be helpful. Sure. Well, that's, you know. We have that in Texas, too. Yeah, well, there's, there, you know, there's a. Yeah, Texas is good at it, but it's kind of a fake nice in Texas, isn't it, Scott? Well, it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, 
No, you know, people are sitting there, you know, a guy's sitting here with these two detectives, and, you know, they're pretty nice guys, and, you know, you want to be helpful, and, um, you know, so, so part of it is the art of schmoozing. You know, you're getting schmoozed by these detectives, and you don't really know it. You know, you're asked a series of leading questions, and you go, well, yeah, kind of. Um, I, I worked on, uh, at the very beginning, at the outset, onset, I worked on the Central Park Jogger case for the New York Daily News way back when. Yeah. And, you know, that was a classic example. And, and one thing they'll do, Scott, is they'll say, hey, your buddy confessed. You know, that guy in the other room there, your best friend, he confessed. And, and not only did he confess, he's laying some of it on you, man. So you say, well, screw that. I'm going to fix him. Yeah, I was there. I saw it happen. I didn't participate. It was, you know, it was my friend Juan. And, you know, then they take that to the next room and say, hey, you know, Juan and Dave have, have confessed, man, and they're laying it on you. Oh, well, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, that's, that's part of the process, too. It's it's a it's psychological warfare that goes on in police interview rooms. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to bring this up. I just watched last night's Out on the Pirate Bay, this new movie regression about the satanic panic of the early 90s. And the uh-huh. thing starts yeah. with a guy saying, well, geez, if my daughter says it, I must have done it because she wouldn't lie. And that's yeah, exactly. God dang, man, wait, call your lawyer. This is slow down. Anyway, witch hunt on from that point on. Uh, anyway, listen, hey, great work. I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and caring about this enough to help illuminate it, David. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. I appreciate the time. We'll do it again sometime. Okay, good deal. That's David Krychek, everybody, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Oh, look him up, Crime Report, thecrimereport.com. Uh, org.